Hello, everyone. This is Coach Aaron Saft and the MR Running Pains podcast. And today, I wanted to kind of just take a moment to reflect on my training for Bigfoot 200. Um, I've received a lot of questions um, about my training, you know, what was different, um, what I do differently. Uh, and it's a great question because I did not put everything on Strava. Um, I did not you know, use my watch on a lot of the, the hiking that I did. And I think that's the biggest difference, but I figured I'd talk a little bit about my training and what I did. Um, having just gone over this, um, with my fellow, um, uh, Lydiard foundation level three coaches, this was my project. If you've been kind of following along, uh, I've been going after my level three certification through the Lydiard foundation for coaching. And, uh, we had to do a project and coach someone with the Lydiard principles of training. So I'm going to talk about that, how I use the Lydiard principles in my training, uh, how that benefited me. Um, you know, can you apply it to your own training? You know, all of those things. Uh, it's not to say that it's for everybody. You, it's it. You know, it certainly can be. Yeah, there's these principles are applicable to everyone, and that's the wonderful thing. It's just what are you training for? You just have to change basically the mileage or the workouts uh, or both to fit your needs for training. But it is a wonderful way to train. Um, it hopefully is uh, a way in which you can stay injury free. So uh, if you have questions about the Lydiard Foundation, I will put their uh, their website in the show notes if you're interested in, in actually becoming a Lydiard coach. Uh, they, have, uh, they have courses all the time. Uh, the first course is level one and two combined. It's a really uh, in-depth look at, at training and the principles. And um, level three is more how to apply those principles. Uh, which is, you know, what I just went through. And I have to, I have to say that it really did help me understand the training principles um, of Lydiard, you know, having them applied, of course, to myself. I was my own project. I was the end of one, um, you know, and, and they <laughs> obviously have never had anybody. We were the first class of level three, so they never had anybody train for a 200-mile race using uh, the principles. So my presentation was um, was pretty long uh, and had a lot of questions. Uh, you know, usually our uh, our meetings didn't don't last as long when we're listening to a coach talk about their, their training of an athlete or themselves because usually they're you know, we've had a like I think we had one gentleman that I saw that that you know trained um, a young woman for a fifty miler. But here, you know, uh, mine took about ninety minutes to present. I don't know how long this podcast will take, uh, but I'm sure you'll have questions. And as always, if you have further questions, you know, reach out to me. However you want, all of my contact information uh, is in uh, the show notes, and you can reach out to me whatever way easiest for you. Uh, and if you want to talk about coaching and training, again, I'm always here for that as well. So, uh, but uh, let's let's just kind of dive in here. Um, you know, the first thing that that I talked about was myself. Um, and you know, for those that don't know me well, I am 44 years old. I'll be 45 in October. Um, I am a father to two kids and, um, and my wife is a doctor, a family physician. And so I have a family life. Uh, so I understand the, uh, the stresses of having to have, uh, time for your family, you know, for your job and trying to fit in training. So, uh, you know, when I go through all this, uh, keep that in mind as well that, you know, I, I have other factors to my life rather than just training. So I am, um, you know, I'm a father, I'm a coach, uh, not only to, uh, you know, I, I coach roughly 85 athletes right now, 
it's my full-time job. Uh, and, but I also coach middle school cross country right now. I coach winter track and I coach spring track as well. So I've got, you know, I've got all of these roles in my life aside from trying to get in my training. I've been running for about 32 years. Um, I, I started running back in 1990 in middle school. Um, and you know, my experience, I've done seven 100 mile races. This was my first 200 mile race. So just a little bit about me. Uh, the course, the Bigfoot 200, uh, location. We started at Mount St. Helens and we ran to Randall, Washington. Uh, the finish was actually on the track at, uh, White Pass High School. Uh, distance is 209 miles, elevation gain 46,000 feet, and there was a cutoff time of 107 hours. So, uh, training overview. My training overview, it, I, uh, I took 33 weeks. This was a 33-week block. And it's, you know, I'm going to go through how I broke that down each phase and how many weeks those were. Uh, so you know, from the beginning of my training to race day, it was 33 weeks total. Um, a few things. I had gained about 20 pounds uh, since COVID started. So since 2020, I had gained about 20 pounds. Um, my lifestyle you know, in coaching made me a little bit more sedentary. And my eating habits um, just stayed the same as my metabolism has slowed as I got older. So I did pick up weight. Now, I noticed that in my running. You wouldn't notice it if I was standing in front of you. Uh, you know, I, I, I really, I still looked, you know, fit and, and like a runner, but uh, I could feel the difference when I was trying to climb mountains and such. So um, in talking, and you've probably heard me talk about this in the podcast in the past, I discussed things with my uh, my family physician, you know, saying, "Listen, I don't feel comfortable at this weight, even though it's a healthy weight for my in my age group, my you know my average age. Um, I just don't feel comfortable out running. I would like to be lighter. Uh, you know, I feel better when I'm lighter, but you know, my normal eating habits aren't conducive to me losing weight. Uh, and you know, I had tried to cut out sweets and." Um, excess snacking between meals, etc. And it just wasn't working. So he suggested my physician, Dr. Judkins, who's been on this podcast in the past, had suggested going on the low carb diet. Now I've done this in the past, I have gone on the low carb diet. Uh, when Chris McDougall's book, uh, Natural Born Heroes came out, I took interest in that. And that was in around 2016, when I was doing the uh, the Beast series in Virginia. And um, at that time, yeah, it was great. I lost some weight. I felt great, uh, but it's really hard, you know, to cut out carbs. Uh, you really feel like you're missing something. But I felt that yes, it was worth trying to in order to reduce the weight, in order to have more success at this event because of how much climbing there was in this event. I really wanted to trim down so that I felt better, fitter, leaner, you know, um, and I wasn't carrying as much weight. So uh, that said. Uh, I started this, oh gosh, maybe April or May, the low carb diet, and I lost 18 pounds, which was pretty incredible. Um, so over the course of, you know, let's say it was April. So over the course of four months, I lost 18 pounds, which is, you know, approximately 2.25 pounds per month. Uh, so we went about in a healthy way, you know, obviously I didn't lose a lot over a short period of time. I wanted to make sure I wasn't going to get injured, that I didn't suffer reds, uh, which obviously is, uh, low energy due to deficiency in, uh, diet and recovery, uh, or too much stress. So, uh, you know, I tried to lose the weight respectively or, uh, appropriately. 
Um, one of the other big things was I practiced my nutrition and hydration throughout. We hear this time and time again through everything we read and hear about is practicing nutrition and hydration. So um, on my medium long runs, my long runs, my hikes, I would bring nutrition with me to practice consuming calories on a regular interval. Uh, and, I, and I'm going to talk about what that interval was later on. Uh, another challenge that I had was dialing in the gear. If you again, if you followed me through this journey, I had a really difficult time dialing my footwear. What was I going to use? Uh, you know, it's it was very difficult. Um, you know, everything I kept reading and watching on the videos was you know going through this rocky terrain of Mount St. Helens at the beginning of the the race, and I wanted to make sure my feet didn't suffer too much. So I tried, you know, I tried so many pairs of shoes. Um, you know, from uh, Raid Light, I got the Norda, the three hundred dollars shoes, um, which which are nice, but they just weren't right. You know, I kept trying um, Hoka. You know, I, I tried the Tecton. I mean, I really spent way too much money on footwear. I recognize that now that, uh, you know, I was, but you know, it was worth it in the end. I ended up, uh, using, uh, three different styles of shoes. And for those curious, uh, the, the most miles I put in were on the ultra Olympus. Uh, they were, they were great. Uh, did cause some blistering on my heels. There was a lot of things that could attribute to that. Not only the, the sandy kind of, um, surface that we were going over. So we were constantly having to dump out shoes, even though we were wearing gaiters, just because of how much sand the course had, um, or silt, you know, it was, it's more of a silt, but it was a really fine powder that got in there. So obviously that creates problem. Um, wetness, we were doing a lot of Creek crossings in which the feet would get wet. And, you know, we tried to, to change shoes. I brought three different pairs of ultra Olympus, knowing that it was going to be my main shoe. Two were size 11 and a half, which is my normal size. And one pair was a size 12, just in case my feet swole. So, uh, ultra Olympus was my main shoe. Um, and, uh, the, uh, oh, the next shoe I used was the, um, uh, mountain racer two by Topo. I used that. Uh, for, for a good number of miles until they were finally soaking wet, they got really wet and, and the, uh, the silt, you know, got really, uh, it really latched onto the shoe. Uh, so I, I got out of those, you know, just to dry out my feet. We stayed at the native station for a while, dried out my feet. And, uh, and then I changed into the ultra Mont Blanc, um, the, the regular pair. I now have a pair of the Boas. They came after, um, I left, uh, that shoe had just come out to market, for, for everyone to purchase. So I have a pair now, uh, but I had the regular pair of Altremont Blancs and, um, they were great, especially for the last road section. Uh, you, you can go back and listen to my podcast on, uh, my recap, my race recap on, uh, on this race. I went through the whole race and you can hear about all that in that, but yeah, dialing in my footwear was a real challenge. Um, and the last challenge was this was a, you know, super costly endeavor. Uh, I can't stress that enough. If you're thinking about doing you know, this type of race, a 200 mile race, the entry fee alone is super expensive. The entry fee for Bigfoot 200 was about $1,500. That's a lot of money. Then when you talk on top of that, uh, you're, where are you going to stay? You know, your hotel or Airbnb in our case, airfare, um, you know, tr uh, the, the rental car, all that stuff, you know, it, it really does add up. So this was a, a very costly endeavor. So, you know, keep those things in mind. If you're ever going to do a 200 mile race, plan to budget you know, plan, plan to put a, a ton of money aside for this because it really is a costly endeavor. All right, let's get into the training. All right. So my first phase and Lydiard's biggest, um, principle that you have to follow is an aerobic base period. Now, 
uh, some basics here. And you can go back and listen to my previous podcast. I kind of talk about each of these um, these phases a little deeper in previous podcasts. Every one of these phases I've, I've pretty much covered in another podcast. But to give you the, the gist, the kind of the overall uh, premise for the, the training cycle, um, in a base period, you want to stay in aerobic zones. Okay, so we're talking zones two, three, and a little bit of zone four. You really don't want to get much higher than 80 to 85% of your maximum heart rate. Okay, if we're talking RPE on my scale, that's about seven to eight on an RPE scale, depending on uh, you know what scale you're looking at. Like I said, according to mine, that's about seven or eight. Um, it's the highest you want to go and you don't want to be there often. You want to spend most of your time, especially early on in the base training phase in zone two, really, really, really easy running. Okay. Build your aerobic capacity in this phase. What we're trying to do is build your cardiovascular engine, make your heart stronger, expand capillaries, expand mitochondria, mitochondria, create energies within our cells. And that's what propels us. So all of these things we're trying to build on these. That was the hugest part of Lydia's um, principles. And this is the base. So Lydiard has a principle. This is the base. And that's why they call it the base phase, the base training phase, because it's the base of the pyramid. It's everything else that we build upon. So super important to do this and not do it too hard um, and gradually build. So in the base period, I spent 10 weeks now, in the base phase, uh, it, it just depends on how much time you have. Ideally, you're going to spend at least eight weeks and at most 12 weeks in the base training phase. Uh, and at first, all that is is just super easy running, you know, just as I was describing. And then I'm going to talk about some of the things that I added on over the course of it. But um, I built my schedule off of time, okay? I didn't worry about mileage. I worried about how much time I was on my feet. Training for a race that had this much elevation gain and this much distance, I much rather would have focused on how much time I was spending in the woods or on the trail or climbing rather than worrying about how many miles. Because if I worried about miles, you know, that could take so much more time. As I always describe to, to athletes when we're training in the mountains and, you know, I say go out for a, let's just say a 10 mile run. If you were to do your 10 mile run on a, on a road or a greenway, you know, even if it's a hilly road or, or a greenway, you know, we're not talking as much time as if I put you onto the trail or especially a mountainous trail. So trail slows down so much more. We spend so much more time on our feet and that's what our body's going to recognize is how much more time we're spending on our feet. So that's why I train by time volume. Um, Okay, so um, during this 10 weeks, I built up to a maximum of 15 hours over the course of, um, of the weeks. So um, 15 hours was my max volume week. Uh, the peak week included a 35-mile um, run. It was uh, eight hours long with 9,000 feet of vertical gain. So uh, again, I built up to this, right? So, um, but that, you know, training for a 200-mile run um, and keeping in mind, Listen, and that's why I, I gave you my athletic profile. I've been at this for a long time. My cardiovascular and aerobic engine are a lot higher because of how much experience I have. You have to go with how much experience you have. If you're not used to doing 35 miles, don't go that high, right? Don't spend that much time on your feet, Go with what you do. If you're used to doing a marathon, maybe you do 18 to 20 miles, you know, or whatever it may be. Um, even time-wise, if we talk time-wise, maybe that's, you know, six hours of running at a max, right? So um, go with what your 
ability is. Just because I did this does not mean you should. I can't stress that enough. Do what your body is used to. And if, if you're used to doing this much mild, but your body is like, I just don't have it you know, at this time, don't force it. Do what your body allows. You will make more adaptations and recover quickly. It's when we're recovering that we actually gain the benefit of the straining stimulus that we're giving it. So listen to your body. You know, don't force it just because the calendar says it. Don't force the training. Do with what do what your body will allow you to do. Okay. So um, while the focus was on building uh, the time duration at a low aerobic effort, again zone two to three heart rate. Um, I did add fartlek runs. Okay. Fartlek is speed play. Now, again, these aren't sprints. I'm not trying to get above zone four where I'm keeping max heart rate between 80 and 85% on these intervals. But, you know, fartlek runs basically are just intervals and, you know, they don't have to be specified. Now you can, you could do like a two minute interval with whatever rest, one minute rest, two minute rest, whatever, you know, you feel comfortable with. Um, but a lot of the times I would just either say, I'm going to go and I'm going to make this a longer interval. Now you want to try to keep those intervals in this base training phase about two minutes or under. So it could have been a 15 second interval. It could have been a minute 36. Again, the time and distance doesn't really matter. It's just kind of, again, going off feel and learning what your body can do. The more you learn your body, the more you learn how it feels and how you can, you know, you can use how you feel, the better you're going to do at the longer distances because you get to learn when you need to eat. You get to learn when your body needs to drink. You get to learn when you can push and when you need to slow down. So listening to your body and learning these things is fantastic. And doing fart licks on a single track trail really is conducive to fartlicks because you have to slow down and speed up. You know, there's certain times where you can go faster and there's certain times where you, can, you need to go slower. Uh, you know, technical sections, you kind of slow down. Turns make you slow down. Uphills make you slow down. Downhills make you speed up. Straightaways, you can speed up. So you can play around just based on uh, what the trail's giving you. Now, it's not to say you can't go fast on an uphill. You can certainly do a, a fast uphill on, in your fartlick runs, but you have to be careful that you don't drive the heart rate too high. Okay. Um, I also included out and back runs, out and back runs. I've done podcasts in the past, both on fart licks and out and back runs. So you can go back and search, uh, the podcast and listen to more about the out and back runs out and back runs are typically about an hour long. Okay. And you go out for a half hour and then you try to come back faster. Again, you're, you're coming back 80 to 85% at max. So it's a gradual build. It's not just hit 30 seconds and all of a sudden just drop the pace. It's a progression. So you want to naturally progress. So if we looked at a chart of these progression runs, we would see kind of a gentle incline, just like a, a diagonal line, if you will, of your pace and your heart rate if you're wearing a chest heart rate strap. Okay. Um, I, you know, I talk about heart rate a lot on the podcast too. But, you know, when I talk about heart rate data, I'm saying that you're wearing like a chest strap monitor. I don't go off of wrist heart rate. I don't feel accurate once we start getting into these higher efforts. So out and back runs and short 10 to 12 second hill repeats. Now, why 10 to 10 to 12 seconds? Um, again, you know, I talk about this in strides in a previous podcast. But, you know, for those that don't know, when you do 10 to 12 second intervals, you stay in the alactic zone, alactic uh, so you're not, you're, you, this interval isn't long enough to drive the heart rate above the aerobic zone. And that's why they call it a lactic. Okay. So 10 to 12 seconds is very appropriate during this phase because we're not going to drive you into that anaerobic zone. 
So all of these things were a part of my weekly training schedule. Now, um, you know, the, there's, you know, a few different workouts here and the strides I incorporated one session each week, uh, the fart licking out and back runs, I would alternate weeks. So one week I would do a fart lick run. The next week I would do an out and back run and the length of my fart licks would increase. So, uh, you know, at first I would do maybe 25 or 30 minutes of fart lick running. So within my, let's say it was, uh, an hour 20 run, uh, you know, I would warm up for like 40 minutes, uh, do my fart lick for 30 minutes and then cool down for 10 minutes. So, you know, you want to have your, your warm up, your cool down, all of that stuff in there. Uh, but that's how I would do my fart licks. And then the alternate weeks. So if I did fart lick week one, week two would be my out and back run. Okay. And then you're always following those with the recovery day because they are an effort you make sure you're recovering from these things, whether it's a day off or just a light jog. Okay. Again, that's where we're going to make the adaptations is allowing ourselves to recover. So during this phase, this 10 week base period phase, thankfully I did not have any injuries or illnesses. So made it through this unscathed. <laughs> All right, let's go to phase two. Phase two, this is where Lydia differs from a lot of different programs. And I'll explain why, um, you know, it's a good thing to do and what benefits I felt from it. Uh, but this phase is called the hill training phase. I spent four weeks in the hill training phase. Um, the hill training phase incorporates some plyometric exercise. Okay. Uh, what that is, is typically now Lydiard, <laughs> Lydiard did the hill training um, sessions. And we'll, we'll say that it's actually, it's, it's pretty much a workout. He did these, you know, five to six times a week with his athletes. So five to six days a week, he was doing this. I myself did it twice a week. Okay. You may do it once a week, maybe twice a week. You really don't have to go beyond that because we're, we're not Olympic athletes. We're still going to gain the benefit from doing these. And the reason why we do the hill training phase, and I've again, done a, a whole other podcast on this phase, uh, is that We've now built up our cardiovascular engine, as I was talking about in the base phase. But what lacks is our musculoskeletal system, right? We are, our musculoskeletal system doesn't develop as quickly as the cardiovascular system. So to you know, put these on an equal playing field to develop the skeletal muscular system, we do this hill training phase, which again is plyometric exercises. And I'll, I'll, I'll break down how I did this and what those exercises are. I also have a YouTube video online. I'll try to post that. That kind of goes through the drills, kind of shows you, you know, what you should be trying to accomplish. Okay. But in this phase, uh, again, four weeks of this phase, I maintained 10 to 12 hours of volume per week. So my average volume was about 10 to 12 hours of volume per week, a little bit down from the base phase. Again, in my base phase, I built up to about 15 hours of work. Um, in this session, as I said, I, I included two sessions per week of hill drills, which went like this. Okay. So the first drill that I did for week one was high knee jog. So there's a drill called high knee jog. Again, you can see my video for uh, what the high knee jog entails. Uh, week two and three, I added in high skips. So I did high knee jog and high skips. Now there's a, a whole sequence to follow when you do this and how many repetitions and for how long. So again, 
you know, go back to my, my, I'm going to try to post all of the, uh, the podcasts that I can, I can find in the show notes. So you can kind of go back and see if you're interested and learn more about this. Um, but for week two and three, I incorporated high skips as well as high knee jog. And then for the fourth week, I brought in bounds, which is the most plyometric and most difficult of the, uh, the exercises you do. So there are three drills, the high knee jog, the high skips and the bounds. So, uh, two sessions per week. Um, and you know, again, for the breakdown of that and the workout, again, see my YouTube video and, uh, and I'll, again, I'll post the podcast on it so you can learn a little bit more about it. Cause I could spend so much time describing the workout and everything, and I don't want to go into that right now. But if you have questions, if you go through those resources and you still have questions, please ask. But again, this, the purpose of this was to catch up, uh, the skeletal muscular system, which by week three, you can really feel a difference. Um, you're, um, you feel more of a, I would say an elastic response. And what that means is as the foot strikes the ground, you can feel the foot out almost rebound and come back up easier. You feel a lot more springy. That's the best term I can use for it. My downhills felt so much easier. Like I wasn't just kind of, you know, breaking and coming down. I was, I was, my feet were kind of turning over more because my feet were popping up quicker. I was able to run downhill more efficiently in other words. So there's a lot of benefits to this. Uh, And again, the purpose of it is to hopefully, uh, keep you from getting injured because if we don't catch that muscular skeletal muscular system up in some regard, and some people do strength training. Okay. Um, but in the Lydiard principles, he does these drills because he didn't do a lot of strength training. Otherwise he did this and that's how he tried to keep his athletes injury free. Now, during this phase, um, I not only did two sessions per week of the hill drills, I also kept including fart licks, out and back runs and strides. Um, strides were a part of the, um, the, uh, hill sessions. Okay. So I did strides as, as a warm up prior to doing the drills, but you know, again, uh, and I, I kept the alternating week schedule. So, you know, week one, I did two sessions of hill drills and then a fartlek workout week two. I did two sessions of hill drills and an out and back run. Okay. So alternating the weeks, just as I had previously in the base phase. Now that's not to say everybody needs to include fartleks and out and back runs within this phase. If the, if, you know, if you're fatiguing and being tired and need more time to recover, don't include the fart licks and out and back runs. So it's really how you're feeling again, going back to listening to your body, don't force workouts. You know, if, if you feel that you can add something in now, the fart licks don't have to be, um, a standalone workout. You could do it in the midst of a medium long run or even your long run. It's a good way to, you know, to kind of balance the days of the week. Right. So, you know, if, if, if it's tough to squeeze in another workout based on everything you're already doing, see if you can incorporate them into one of your normal runs that you have a recovery day following. Um, again, thankfully I didn't have any injuries during this phase, but I did get sick. Uh, it, it kind of put me down for about five days. It was non COVID related, but, um, you know, I, I definitely, I had an injury, uh, uh, an illness that, that kind of put me aside, uh, during this phase, I had also planned and, you know, you, you may remember from previous episodes, I was going to try to do the brute challenge. And during this phase, I wanted to try to attempt scar and I actually started out, um, I, you know, I, I started out on the scar route, which is the, um, the Appalachian trail 
through the Smoky Mountains. And, um, you know, unfortunately, the night before I tried to start, we got a really big snowfall in the Smokies. And, uh, you know, I got to a certain point and it was just, you know, above my knee. (laughs) The snow was above my knee. And I ended up having to turn around just because it was unsafe. I wouldn't be able to see anybody uh, at the only, uh, you know, uh, refueling spot. There was a newfound gap is the only spot on the course where you can actually, uh, you know, see somebody and resupply. And that road was closed. So uh, we just deemed it too, too, uh, too risky. So I turned around and went back. (laughs) So unfortunately, I still got a good long run in, but, uh, you know, it it, it did not work out to, to get in scar. All right. So that's the hill training phase. Moving on to the next phase. Um, now for ultra runners, uh, we'll talk about this, uh, short intervals. Okay. Short intervals. Um, you know, I talk about this in, in a lot of different podcasts because, um, Short intervals are anaerobic, okay? Anaerobic intervals. These are kind of max VO2. You're really working 90% maximum heart rate and higher, which takes a lot out of the body. There is a lot of acidity that is produced. The muscles are taxed and fatigued. It takes a lot more recovery. So there's, you know, there's a lot of reasons why, you know, perhaps an ultra runner wouldn't do this because of the the risk of injury, uh, the increase in fatigue that you have to reduce volume. Uh, so I, I say this with, um, you know, a tale of caution. Okay. This is not for everybody. If you are especially new to running and ultra running, this probably isn't a phase for you. If you are more experienced and, you know, are, um, uh, you know, used to doing this type of workout and you want to increase your fitness ceiling, this is, you know, this is the phase that, that you can do it. Um, I spent three weeks in this. I didn't want to do it for too long. I didn't want to create too much fatigue. Again, you know, this is a time where I had to reduce volume. You can't increase intensity and volume at the same time. If you want to increase the quality of your workouts, you have to reduce the volume that you are doing um, in your weekly, uh, uh, your weekly overall volume has to be decreased. So um, these, I did one session per week because again, there's, this is putting a lot on the body. Um, when I was younger and I could recover quicker, um, you know, I would do two of these sessions per week, but now that I'm, I'm older, it takes more time to recover. I I've reduced it to one workout per week. Um, being more specific and training specific, uh, specific to the course, I made sure that these workouts involved Hills. Two of these workouts were uphill specific intervals. I did seven by two minutes and then six by three minutes. Okay. Uh, one workout was an uphill downhill workout. So I did six by two minutes uphill and turning right around and going one minute downhill with the, So it's a total of a three minute interval, but, uh, you know, being specific to the course, knowing that I would have a lot of climbing and descending on this course, wanted to make sure these workouts applied to that. So when you're doing your workouts, when you're doing long intervals or short intervals, try to replicate what you're going to do in the race itself. If it's a flatter course, obviously train flat. I mean, it's, it's still good. Uh, you have less likelihood of injury to do uphill intervals. That's another benefit of doing uphill intervals. Again, I talk about, you know, the benefits of, um, uphill workouts in another podcast, but, um, you know, uh, just my, my biggest thing is just be careful with this. Make sure you're recovering, make sure you're not feeling any tweaks, uh, make sure your forms not inhibited by fatigue. Okay. Uh, so 
recover. You, these intervals typically take about 48 hours to recover from. So plan on two days of recovery. You know, the first day being a real easy recovery. The second day, don't plan anything too hard or anything that will increase fatigue. So as I said, my weekly volume time was reduced during this phase. I brought it down to eight to nine hours per week. Um, a, a lot was going on during this phase for me. Uh, it was a very stressful phase. Uh, you know, I talked earlier about what I do, but I was coaching high school outdoor track. Uh, I had about 90 adult athletes that I was coaching at the time because Hellbender was coming up. Uh, of course, still had my normal family light life and I was preparing to put on the Hellbender 100. So there was so much going on during this phase. I ended up tweaking my hamstring on, uh, on one of the, uh, the workouts and it kind of slowed me down for about almost a week. Uh, you know, it, I wasn't able to, to really train as hard. I couldn't do a uh, high intensity cause I didn't want to hurt the hamstring any worse. Um, but you know, that was just, that was a, that was a tough time. So three weeks in that short interval phase. And again, that's kind of a, um, we'll say a optional phase for ultra runners. Uh, there, again, there are benefits to it, but there are also risks. So it's a risk reward. Uh, so it's, it's something to, ponder, uh, perhaps seek professional advice on, uh, if you have a coach, something to talk about. Okay. Especially if you have a history with injury. So careful and caution on that phase. Uh, the next two weeks of my training, I had to really just, um, get in what I could and be happy with that because that was my preparation for putting on the hellbender 100 mile race. Um, so the next two weeks of my training, my, my training were almost recovery periods. It was almost a recovery period because, I just, I had to really concentrate on everything else that was going on, you know, making sure that I had everything ready for Hellbender and, you know, obviously continue to do everything else I was already doing. So I had about two weeks of just, you know, real easy running uh, and just, again, fitting in what I could. Um, after those, those two weeks, um, I built in long intervals. Okay. Now long intervals, uh, again, uh, I'll try to put in the show notes, uh, podcasts that are relevant to this, but long intervals are typically to me about seven minutes plus in length. Okay. Uh, and you're doing them at a reduced effort. Whereas the short intervals were about 90% or nine RPE, 90% of maximum heart rate or nine RPE long intervals. They're kind of more of our 80 to 85% maximum heart rate or, uh, seven to eight, uh, in your RPE scale. Um, these, uh, I did, I still did once per week. You can do two per week. If you feel you are recovering, um, you could even do three typically cause you recover from these much quicker. The, obviously the effort isn't as hard, but it's all about how are you recovering? Uh, these typically take about 24 hours to recover from. Uh, and so my workouts, they looked like three by 12 minutes on rolling Hills. And you typically take a half of the time to recover from it. Uh, another one was five by seven minutes alternating uphill and downhill. So interval one uphill, uh, interval two downhill, interval three uphill, and just keep alternating in that regard till you get to five. Then I, you know, uh, I, I built a little bit higher, went four by 10 minutes on rolling hills, and then five by eight minutes alternating uphill and downhill. And the last week during week five was two by 20 minutes at, on rolling hills. Okay, so those are the workouts that I did during this phase. Again, it's really specific to you as to what you're comfortable with, how long you're comfortable with. Um, you know, you, you typically don't want to do more than an hour worth of intervals. Uh, that's at the high side. On the low side, 
you're looking anywhere from 20 minutes uh, to you know to, you know 30 minutes is kind of a, a great range on the the lower side. Or if you're just starting and, and learning how to do these intervals, that's perfect. Um, my average time volume per week was about 11 hours over the course of this training block uh, or this training cycle. I added hiking uh, during this phase on the treadmill. So, um, you know, I, I like to set the treadmill, uh, for most of my runners, somewhere between 16 and 18% incline, I was doing 18% incline to 20% incline, and I was going 25 to 30 minutes, two to three times per week. And that would be after an average run. So I may do an you know, an hour, you know, maybe an easy hour, come inside and then get on the treadmill and go 25 to 30 minutes. Again, this, it, it's what can you do? You know, maybe it's two by 10 minutes. Maybe it's two by 15 minutes. Maybe it's 20 minutes, you know, gradually build. Now, again, this is hiking, right? So we don't want it to be super hard. We do want it to be comfortable, like you're power hiking on a hill, getting used to that. That's what, you know, that's what the idea is behind this. So um, treadmill hiking. Uh, I also started to include the back-to-back long runs. Uh, the longest being a, uh, a 50K on Saturday and a 30K on Sunday. For those that you're familiar with the area, this is the weekend I ran from the Folk Arts Center to Mount Mitchell, and then I followed it the next day with um, some of my training buddies. And um, yeah, so a lot of time on my feet. It was a nine-hour and 45-minute run and a three-hour and 45-minute run, just to give you an idea of what the, the longest back-to-back that I had during this phase was. Now, again, that's me. Do what's best for you right? Do what your body allows. Uh, and during this phase, thankfully I didn't have any illness or injury. Okay. Moving on. Whew. Uh, the integration phase. All right. Integration phase. Um, now typically in the integration phase, if, if I was a marathoner integration phase means that we're going to be incorporating, uh, what's, um, you know, what we are going to, you know, be facing in our goal race. So, um, you know, we want to do marathon pace. We want to replicate the course the best we can. Is it a flat course? Is it a hilly course? You know, this is that time to be specific, work on your specificity. Okay. Um, so the integration phase for me was six weeks long. This is where I build to maximum mileage. Okay. This is where you want to do max mileage, uh, for an ultra, uh, integration phase doesn't have to be six weeks long. Okay. It can be uh, four to five weeks long if you're training for a shorter race. But, uh, if you're training for a hundred K on up, you know, six weeks is a good time to kind of stay in this phase and build your, your volume. So for me, being specific, okay, I focused on maximum time on feet per week, vertical gain, and heat training. Now, you know, Bigfoot 200, uh, temperatures can be, you know, anything. So I wanted to make sure that I was heat trained just in case. For me, that included a wet sauna. Now, um, it's recommended if you listen to the Coopcast that you use a dry sauna. I didn't have access to it, so I used a wet sauna, which seemed to work just fine for me. Um, so during this phase, obviously maximum volume, um, you want to make sure you're recovering. Okay. So just as I've been saying throughout here, uh, you, you know, you can't always keep building your volume. There may need to be during this six weeks, a down week in which you just recover. And during that week, it's just getting out for a run, shaking out the legs, making sure you're feeling better. Okay. So if you're feeling stale, tired, you don't want to make yourself too tired. Now I know the taper's coming up and you can kind of catch up, but we don't want to put ourselves in too much deficit that we have to really taper hard. So there's a balance. 
and, and finding that balance is very difficult. But if you're learning to listen to your body, then you should be fine. Okay. Uh, so this fade, this phase, I still included strides and, and strides during this phase can be longer. Okay. You still can, you can go, you know, 20 second or 30 second strides, do uphill strides. You can even do 45 second, um, you know, hill repeats or strides. Uh, it also still included fartlicks. Uh, I, I, I still stayed on top of the treadmill hiking. Uh, I did long hikes. That, those, this is where I included the long hikes. And those are the things that I really didn't include on Strava, but I did long hikes in the mountains practicing with my pack and my poles. So I, you know, I would load up my pack and go out with my poles and just practice like I was out at Bigfoot. You know, I would just go up some big climbs, just, you know, hike uphill for a while, hike downhill. Uh, you know, sometimes I would just, I'd be on a, on a trail and I would just see a, uh, a ridge line up to my right and I would just go, I, you know, no trail, just kind of hike up to the ridge, see what was up there. Um, and I'm glad I did because there was a lot of, uh, of overgrowth, um, during the Bigfoot course. And, and I was, uh, you know, I was, you can't say you were comfortable with it, but I was, uh, adept. I, you know, I had, I had experienced it in my own training. Uh, which I didn't know ahead of time, <laughs> but fortunately I had. So um, during this, my peak week included 28 hours, and that included a 100k effort. That was the you know the time in which I did the out and back on the Art Lobe Trail. Um, unfortunately, during this this period, the six week period, I had I contracted COVID. Uh, which you know took me down for about two weeks. Now during those two weeks, I was able to kind of get back after a week to do some some easy running and you know some walking. But the fatigue from COVID really hit me hard. Fortunately, after about fourteen days, I was able to kind of uh, you know get back on my feet. Fourteen days, I felt normal. I went out for my last long run, which was about uh, twenty miles, just under six hours, with about uh, seven thousand feet of gain. So I was you know I was pretty comfortable about that. Sure, it took a mental toll. I was only four weeks out from Bigfoot when that happened. So if you know, that does play on your mind and I'll kind of talk about how I dealt with that as well. So I'm going to get to that in a little bit here. Last phase is the taper. Now, when you're in a long event, like um, Bigfoot 200, and you've been doing six weeks in the integration phase, which is your maximum volume, you want a longer taper right? Uh, in my case, um, you know, I, I just kind of come off COVID. I had about uh, maybe a week, maybe a little bit longer, kind of in that, that maximum um, volume phase. So here, you know, when I say this, you know, the, the taper would have been three weeks, but it was more like two because I was still kind of, you know, trying to build back a little bit before I really tapered off because of having COVID, I was already pretty rested. So, you know, when I say this, mine was a little bit shorter, but you want about three weeks after, um, six weeks of building. If you did four weeks, you're looking at about two week taper. So it's about half if we look at the taper, right? So four weeks of maximum volume, two weeks of taper, uh, six weeks of maximum volume, three weeks taper. Okay. Um, my, my, my volume, uh, three weeks out was seven and a half hours, uh, two weeks out, six hours. And then race week, I, I you know, I just kind of took it super easy, uh, and, and got into the race day. Um, during this time, the, 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 I, something stuck with me from the Lydia training, which, um, I'd, I'd like to kind of stress to you all, um, you have to balance yourself and this is where you really need to listen to your body. And I tell my athletes this all the time. It's as if there was a scale. Okay. So the scales, uh, on one side, you have, you're feeling sluggish and, and lethargic. That's a good time to throw in surges, do fart licks, uh, do strides, kind of uh, add speed to kind of 
battle or combat that that sluggishness. Now, if you're feeling too good, if your legs are like really springy and and you you want to you know you want to run too fast, add more volume to the run. Okay, so make the run longer. That will help kind of balance those scales, so you kind of stay in the middle and and kind of feel good during the taper period. Um, so uh, during this phase, I also maintain the heat training protocol. Okay, um, Jason Coop's book uh, Training Essentials for Ultra Running has a great kind of schedule to follow. There's a, a six week program, which is what I was on, uh, and um, there's a, a shorter two week program. Uh, those are those are awesome. So check out that book, Jason Coop's Training Essentials for Ultra Running. Um, and you know, uh, besides the heat training, I also keep uh, kept the incline hi- uh, treadmill hiking, uh, you know, in the program. Uh, and thankfully, after COVID, I did not have any injuries or illnesses. Um, you know, I was good to go leading into race day. So um, then, you know, then came the race. Obviously, you can listen to my race recap uh, in my previous episode if you want to hear more about the race itself. Okay, uh, assessing uh, the overall training plan and my final thoughts. So um, now, uh, you know, I talked about in the, uh, the short interval uh, the short interval phase. Uh, and I'll say the reason I did short interval phase before the long interval phase, there is a reason for that. You want to do what's more specific to your event closer to the event. Okay. So, um, short intervals obviously are, uh, the, the least of our concerns as ultra runners, right? We're, we're, we're going to be running mostly aerobic. So there's, you know, that's the, short intervals are not as important to, uh, to the success of your event. Whereas longer intervals will help you sustain faster paces for longer periods of time. So those should be done closer to the event. So that's why I did them in the order I did. If you were training for a 5k, you would reverse that you would do the longer intervals first, shorter intervals second, because the shorter intervals are, you know, they're, they're more of what will benefit you most for doing a 5k. So, uh, with that said, um, you know, during that short interval phase, I should have probably reduced my, um, my volume even more and been more cognizant of how my body was doing, um, in those workouts so that I wouldn't have tweaked my hamstring. Uh, you know, I had a lot of stress going on. I was losing sleep because of how much stress I was, I was, uh, I had. Um, so, you know, all of that stress is stress, right? Running adds to stress. Cortisol, it comes from running. It comes from, um, you know, your job stress, all of that stuff, your family life, all that stress adds up. And I was at a, a really high amount of stress. And I attribute that to why I hurt my hamstring. I should have recognized that and reduced my volume during COVID. You know, obviously that was not ideal. I lost uh, a training weekend um, in which I wanted to do three back-to-back long runs. Uh, So a back-to-back-to-back long run weekend just to kind of feel what three days of volume in a row would feel like, you know, having done the hundred K I had, you know, a good idea of, of where I was fitness wise. Um, But um, you know, that said, uh, not getting in the back to back to back to back long run. Um, I'm happy that I didn't try to force training coming back. You know, I, I, I missed that period and I didn't try to just, you know, increase my volume to, you know, to where I, you know, where I had just come from zero, um, during COVID, I didn't try to jump back into training. You know, I, I, I tried to smartly do things, listening to my body. What did it allow? Okay. So if you lose time, don't be worried. 
you know, you've done this huge training block. And that's what you know, I said, I talked about the mental aspect of this later, I looked back at my training and recognized how much time on feet I had done. What had I accomplished during this training block? Look at the, you know, the, the various things that you you have done, you know, how many long runs have you gotten in? How many how much um, vertical gain have you gone through? You know, all of these things, look at your workouts and, and take confidence that you know, you've done enough. And that's what I had to keep reminding myself. Uh, and, you know, a great, uh, great thing. And I've talked about this a lot. And I keep saying that I apologize. <laughs> but uh, reading Addy Bracey's book, Mental Training for Ultra Running, it really is a game changer. It really put me in a better mental space. Um, you know, I, I had read the earlier chapters much earlier in my training, which was very relevant to where I was at in, in finding my why and finding an intrinsic value in this race and why I was doing it. Uh, but I had to keep assessing that. And I kept going back and looking at the various activities, workbook activities that she has in the book and reassessing and making sure that I was putting myself in the best mental space and giving myself the best mental tools that I could for race day. So I really suggest that book for any time you're preparing for a race. It's great for life too, but you know if you're preparing for an event, whether it's ultra or not, it's a great book to kind of work through. Okay. Um, and then you know I will say that my why, you know, just as I was just talking about, became essential during race day. So really having that that intrinsic why, you know, it really was solid. Um, so if you're if you're thinking about a race, make sure that it's not only an extrinsic reward that you're seeking. Make sure there's intrinsic reward and value to this race. And again, in Addie's book, she talks a lot about that. Another great resource is uh, Travis Macy's book, The Ultra Mindset. There's a lot in each book that you can draw from and help create your why and make sure that it's super strong so that when you get into that dark space, and it will come, it, you have something to draw upon. You have something to look inward and say, yes, this is why I'm doing it. This is why I need to continue forward. You know, that to me, it was, was huge. Um, you know, one of my intrinsic values is just being able to show my family, my kids, especially that I can do more than what most people deem, um, reasonable or possible. Right. So taking on this 209 mile journey, uh, you know, this is something that's just crazy to most folks. It was crazy to me too, but I wanted to have the drive and, and ability and capacity to say I did it and to show my kids that these things are possible, that we can do more than what we imagine we can. And we talk about that and having that, that in my mind, just, you know, knowing that, uh, I would see my kids later in the race and showing them that I'm still going, that I'm not giving up. I, I want them to take on that attitude as well. And that was huge to me. It really was. When I saw them at the last aid station, I mean, I gave them the biggest hug because I knew I was close to the finish and they knew I was close to the finish. And having the the ability to finish it with them on the track, it's a memory I'll never forget. It's, you know, I'll draw on that for the rest of my life. Okay. Um, in closing, you know, this training block, not only the race, it was challenging. It was fun. I enjoyed my journey. I enjoyed getting out there and putting in this training. And I think that's uh, something that we all need to remind ourselves is, you know, the training is, is the journey, right? That's the bulk of this. We have to enjoy that process. If you're not enjoying that process, 
you need to reflect. Why are you not enjoying the process? What is it that's making you um, upset or, um, or, or negative about training? You know, are you doing something specifically that you're not enjoying? Is there something you can change or do differently that can, you know, help make this a more fun experience because it needs to be, or else you're not going to get to the race in a positive frame of mind. It was also painful. (laughs) You know, there's, there's a lot of times where I was just tired, you know, after certain efforts and I had to recover and that's what you have to remember. I keep going back to make sure the body is recovering. Uh, Every time I felt tired, I backed off. You know, I didn't push forward because that's when you get injured or your training starts going downhill. So be real cognizant of your recovery. I've often been asked also, you know, will I run another one? I don't know. (laughs) I really don't know. You know, um, you know, like what's next? My mind is on Western States. Uh, you know, thankfully I have, I won the raffle ticket. I will be at Western States next year. Uh, you know, God willing, I stay healthy. It's that's, that's my next thing. That's what I'm focused on beyond that. I don't know. (laughs) I don't know if I will do another 200 miler or not. Uh, there's potential out there. I would love to go over to Europe, uh, perhaps run Tour de Jans or, uh, the, uh, what is it? The Swedish 360, I think it is. Uh, but you know, there's, there's potential of course. Um, but I'm just going to enjoy this, this moment you know, having successfully made it through the training block and having successfully completed Bigfoot 200, you know, the, the, uh, the proof is in the pudding, the training worked, um, you know, following these principles, it got me through to the finish. Um, I, I, I ran the last 13 miles, which is, you know, 196 miles in, I ran from there to the finish. I had to take a few quick little walk breaks. There was a few little hills, you know, I noticed my heart rate was getting a little bit high because it was hot, but you know, for the most part, I ran it in. I was able to run it in because I had that aerobic capacity to do so. And I thank my training for that. So if you have questions, comments, concerns, uh, you know, let me know, ask in whatever way is best for you. Okay. This, uh, this podcast is coming out on September 1st. Um, I'm also working on the newsletter. That's going to have a whole recap, uh, my race report. I'm working on that as well. My written race report. Um, so, you know, check out my newsletter. If you haven't subscribed, you can do so on my website, mrrunningpains.com and subscribe to the newsletter. It is free. It comes out once a month, all sorts of stuff in there, training tips, etc. Um, so please subscribe to the newsletter. Um, my video, my YouTube video for Bigfoot has come out. I'll also include that in the newsletter, but if you want to check out YouTube, you can click on the link in the show notes and check out my, my Bigfoot video. It's about 30 minutes long, kind of gives you an idea. You can hear me talking about where I'm at in the race and how I'm feeling and doing. Um, so that's up there. Um, my goodness, it, you know, there's just um, so much that I've been working on post Bigfoot. Um, I really hope that this, uh, this was insightful for you. Um, if you want to hear more details again, just reach out. I'm happy to, to have that talk. Like I said, I've had a few people reach out about like, you know, they're, they're actually doing a, a 200 miler and maybe it's Moab 240 or, you know, um, or something else. Um, but you know, we've had a conversation or we're having conversations. So please reach out. I'm happy to, to share my knowledge. And, uh, you know, if, if you want coaching, uh, you're doing something next year. I have two athletes that are doing Tahoe 200 next year. I've coached, uh, two athletes that have done 200 milers. One was the, uh, the dragons, uh, H nine, 200 miler. Uh, and the other was a Tahoe 200 as well. So I've, I've been coaching athletes to 200 milers. Um, and again, having my own experience uh, that may be invaluable to you. So again, 
you know, if you want to talk coaching, please reach out. Uh, my email is runningpains at gmail.com. You can find me on social media, Strava, whatever's easiest for you. Uh, I can't say thank you enough uh, for all your support through this. Uh, it's been uh, it's been wonderful uh, getting text messages and uh, you know instant uh, instant messages and uh, just emails you know with congratulations. I, I really do appreciate the recognition of this. Uh, it means a lot to me. This you know finishing this does mean the world to me. Uh, it gave me my qualifier for Western States. Uh, it was a like I said a memory that I have with my family that I'll never forget. So. Thank you for sharing this journey with me. Um, yeah, hopefully in the next few weeks, we'll get back to having some regular guests. But uh, I found this you know, a good topic to kind of go over and talk about. So hope you enjoyed it. Until next time, my friends, keep running.